and welcome to ED Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, which is all about carbon markets, trading and offsetting. We catch up with the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets' Chris Leeds to explore how greenwashing can be prevented as markets grow. And we ask Lord Barker in his new role as co-chair of the World Bank's Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition where this mechanism fits in the net zero policy toolbox. Yes, good morning and a very warm welcome to all of you on this, what I wanted to say sunny when I wrote the script, but it's actually pretty grey and drizzly for me, um, day in June. I'm ED Senior Reporter and Honorary Podcast Secretary Sarah George, and I'm joined in our virtual recording studio today by our content editor, Matt Mace, who I finally managed to rope back into the podcast. Matt, I presume that your excuse was was the Euros starting. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know... And football's on each day. You've got to you've got to prioritise that over your actual job. I I think is is a fair fair approach. Duties called him, but in in all honesty, his excuse I think has actually been launching um, among some pretty other hefty reports for us. Our net zero carbon playbook and our COP twenty six primer reports, starting with a primer on clean energy. So I wanted to start there with Matt. For those who aren't aware, um, a brief introduction to those primer reports and what they're all about. Yeah, sure. So um, obviously COP26 is less than six months away now. Um, And it's kind of outlined its key themes for discussions um, uh, that are going to kind of form the negotiate these global negotiations and hopefully lead to this Glasgow Accord or whatever it's going to be called, an update to the Paris Agreement. Um, And what we are trying to do at ED is, is take those those key themes and really kind of um, dissect what that means for our for our business so um, for, well, not for our business but for businesses in, in general so um, for those that don't whether the, the key themes for COP26 are clean energy, uh, climate-based finance, clean transport, nature-based solutions and then uh, adaptation uh, and resilience. Um, so we're dissecting those key themes as to the state of play, how is the globe performing on clean energy for example how's it performing on clean transport how the uk is doing it um what the enablers have been for each of those key themes so for you know finance it's very much been tcfd has kind of really been a big enabler for for green finance to to really take off uh for transport obviously evs is a, is a big one uh, and then looking ahead to the accelerators you know we we know we're at these gaps whether it's a policy gap a capacity gap a spending gap for for all of these issues. So what are the things that are going to be uh, able to accelerate these markets? So you look at, you know, vehicle to to grid technology um, for both transport and clean energy. You look at sustainable aviation fuels for transport, for finance. It's this uh, these kind of sustainability linked loans that you and I, Sarah, we've been seeing quite a lot of recently Mm -hmm. from corporates. Um, So the the report is basically if you're if you're a sustainability professional and you're you're wondering how you can play your part and get into net zero across those key themes and, and what COP will have in store for all of them, the, the reports are a great, great foundation for that. 
Great, lovely bit of promo there. And you can find that report at ed.net forward slash downloads. That's ed.net forward slash downloads. As for me, there's never been a dull moment in between organising and recording the segments of this podcast and our other episodes. So while Matt's been in his bunker writing those reports, I've been overseeing most of our news and the biggest stories from the past fortnight or so have definitely been from the Committee on Climate Change, the CCC. Their third climate risk assessment was out last week and this week we got the progress reports to Parliament on decarbonisation and adaptation both. As most of us working in the sustainability space would probably expect, the reports were damning and highlight those gaps that you mentioned, Matt. The UK is off track pretty much on all counts um, on decarbonisation, adaptation and risk management. But all is not lost. As you say, the next few months will be a key opportunity to finalise policy frameworks and catalyse business action, creating that longer term certainty on the direction of travel that we so desperately need. These reports come about a month into our ongoing Countdown to COP26 festival series of content that we've touched on here, through which we're exploring those five chosen themes for COP26. Under and beyond these five themes, some issues have definitely started to stick out as popular discussion points and areas with lots of unanswered questions. Broad carbon policy is definitely one of them, whether that's about measures to incentivise decarbonisation or whether ensuring that residual emissions can be properly netted to zero. And that's exactly what we're going to be exploring in this episode. In this first section, the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, as Chris leads, um, is going to help me explore what it will take to grow the current market for carbon offsetting to the levels needed for the net zero transition. Launched last year, the task force estimates that the current market is going to need to be at least 15 times bigger in 2030 than it was in 2019, and at least 160 times bigger by 2050. And scaling the markets alone won't be enough. Credibility issues will need to be tackled at the same time, and the market should prevent businesses, especially those which are not hard to abate, from offsetting before reducing their emissions in-house. Members of that task force, started by Mark Carney, include some of the world's biggest energy, steel, shipping and FMCG firms. The finance sector is also heavily represented, with professionals from the likes of BlackRock, the Bank of America, BNP Paribas and Standard Chartered. Standard Chartered is Chris's employer. He works there in his day job as their executive director of their commodity organisation. That's probably enough of a rambling introduction to the task force from me. Um, so without further ado, let's play that catch up chat with Chris in full. Good morning, Chris. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. Um, how are you this morning? Well, I'm very well, thanks, Sarah. And it's great to be on here. I'm looking forward to uh, uh, being able to answer all your questions as fully as I possibly can. Yeah, and great to, to be able to explore them. I really wanted to get the task force on this episode. I couldn't think of a better organisation um, to have. And I wanted to start there, I suppose. So we've had a lot of um, top line press releases about the task force. So firstly, about its formation um, and then about some updates and consultations. Um, but it'd be great to take a look behind the scenes. So how did you come to be involved um, involved in this initiative? Well, personally, uh, I've, I've been working at Standard Chartered for a number of years now, but I've been working in the uh, environmental markets in one way or form for 
uh, over 15 years. Um, so I actually uh, set up the carbon markets trading desk at uh, Merrill Lynch uh, back in 2005. Uh, kind of the kind of carbon markets 1.0 when um, we started trading the European Emissions Trading Scheme uh, initially, which is the still one of the biggest compliance markets in the world. Uh, and so I've been uh, involved in, in one way or form ever since. And, and um, at the beginning of uh, uh, 2020, uh, our CEO, um, Standard Charter CEO, Bill Winters, was approached by, by Mark Carney. So Mark Carney was keen to see that uh, the, pr the private sector was able to support the development of, of markets within the um, within the uh, carbon emissions markets to support the Paris Agreement, to support the uh, international trading uh, um, arrangements around that. And he felt that that was something that um, Bill Bill could uh, input to as the chair uh, to, to, to be the chair of the uh, of this task force that he wanted to set up uh, because of his own credentials in the environmental markets and sustainable finance um, and also um, Standard Charter's own stance uh, around uh, uh, reducing carbon emissions and developing sustainable finance um, for its clients. So that was that was really how I got involved. Um, and uh, uh, I've been supporting Bill as chair of the uh, task force for scaling the voluntary carbon markets, the TSVCM, uh, since then. And, and it's been a, 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 a very um, intense journey. We actually kicked the uh, task force off in uh, September 2020. Um, with around 40 uh, participants originally um, from across different parts of the, the value chain. We have suppliers of carbon credits, we have emitters, we have NGOs, academics uh, and others who, who really do represent a broad range and cross-section across the, across the market. Um, but it's really grown since then. We set up a consultation group as well at the same time, which again started with about 40 or 50 uh, participants, but we've now got over 250 um, participants in the in the task force. Um, so, so it's a really it's a really um, a, a great organisation that represents a large part of the of the voluntary carbon markets. Fantastic. And I wanted to get a feel on what what that part is saying at the moment, because I remember getting a press release a couple of weeks ago about new consultations from the task force. Um, one of the points up for the up for consultation is the creation of a governance body um, for the market. So potential legal principles and how that should sit and where it should sit. Um, so I'd love to hear, I've read the document, but for people that are listening and haven't, um, I'd love to hear um, in your words what the task force initial proposals are for that body um, and a little bit about what the response has been like to to that consultation so far. Judging by what you've said, I'm, I'm presuming it's been it's been busy. Yes, that's right. It has been busy. So, so at the end of the um, the initial uh, phase um, that, that completed in January uh, 2021, um, we 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 set out what we were going to do for this this second implementation phase. And as you say, we wanted to put in place um, a, a governance um, body. Uh, we wanted to set out uh, exactly what we thought should be our core carbon principles. And the core carbon principles are the idea that um, it's a it's a high quality threshold that we want all carbon um, uh, projects and carbon credits to, to, to meet um, to, to show that we really are uh, trying to focus on the on the quality of the market and the integrity of the market. Uh, and then, as you say, we were also wanted to make sure that there were legal contracts, standardized legal contracts that could enable those those um, 
core carbon principles to work and to turn into contracts that would would enable uh, the, the the projects high quality projects carbon projects to be um, to be supplied to the market so that was the conclusion uh, of the um, of the consultation at the beginning of the year um, we've been in in the uh, in that second phase uh, from March and that completed that wraps up at the end of May and we're now in this um, public consultation uh, which you can find on the IIF's website so so please uh, I'll, I'll, I'll send you the details but it's very easy to find the IIF's website with the TSVCM microsite there and you'll find all the details of the consultation and we really do want to encourage people to participate as much as possible we'll be planning to uh, publish the results on the 8th of July, around the time of the G20 meetings. Um, so there'll be a lot of publicity around that. And so far we have, we've had a great uh, response. We've had over a hundred uh, people start the, the consultation, actually get in and start looking at the, um, the details of the consultation. We've had quite a few people respond um, uh, individually as well. And we're really keen to, to get this governance body in place by um, hopefully ahead of, of COP26 in November, um, hopefully well before then, probably September, October. Uh, we've asked for submissions from people who are willing to um, step up as a founding sponsor. Um, and a founding sponsor is essentially the, um, they'll be the, the initial uh, board members of the independent um, board. Um, we're looking for NGOs, academics, uh, uh, organizations that have a, 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 a stake in the market, but also that have knowledge and expertise. Um, we're also looking for independent governors. There'll be a series of independent governors as well um, who will be part of that uh, that overall governance board. Um, then the governance board will be uh, will have a secretariat that um, will will answer to it and will execute all of the uh, all of the decisions um, and make sure that uh, all of the uh, everything is uh, uh, that the governance body wants to 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 do is actually done. Um, and uh, there's an expert body as well. So beneath that sits this expert group, um, which we made up of of, of um, uh, individuals from, uh, as it gets a uh, of civil society and NGOs and academics who will be advising the board on the specifics of of of, of what's going on in the carbon markets of the actual projects that are being developed and ensuring that high quality, ensuring that they meet these core carbon principles. And that's one of the first jobs that we want the government's board to do is to finalize the core carbon principles so that so that organizations know exactly what they need to to do to um, to produce those high quality carbon credits. Great. And obviously this avoidance of greenwashing and this assurance about quality is a key part of this this scaling up because it's one thing to just scale it up as it is. But obviously these issues will need to um, be tackled as it is scaled. And you mentioned there the need to have all these different voices involved um, and this checking of the, the high quality threshold. But when it comes to governments using carbon markets and making sure that they are not greenwashing, um, what could this body do about issues like double counting or about trading systems not having the right size or, or scope? So the the, the, the the task force is very much about the private sector and ensuring that the private sector are able to deliver um, and, and supply good quality carbon credits. And, and, and the, the key areas that we're looking at, the high level um, uh, um, principles of, of the core carbon principles are that these carbon credits must be real, verifiable, um, permanent, uh, that not double counted and that they are obviously additional. If we're using carbon credits for 
for offsetting. If companies are using them to say that they've effectively offset their carbon emissions, the additionality point is incredibly important. So that's something that we're looking at very closely. Um, but uh, but as you say, double counting is an incredibly important uh, uh, important issue. Now, one of the ways that that's being dealt with on a global basis is via the uh, Article 6 um, uh, rules under the Paris Agreement. So I don't really want to get into too much detail about the uh, complexities of Article 6 because um, it, it, it's a obviously a, um, a, a, a very very technical area. And and as a task force, we haven't actually said um, anything too explicit about how we see them working because this is at a public policy level. It's being discussed at the um, at the regulatory level. And, and it's not our place to tell the regulators how we think the market um, should should be uh, managed at the international um, trading level. However, we're very much um, willing to to accept those um, and, and to work with the, with whatever actually is agreed. Um, hopefully, will be agreed at the uh, COP26 this November. Um, but but the what the Article Six rules one of the things that the Article Six rules does and it does many many things but one of them is 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 hopefully deal with um, double counting and it's the idea of using a corresponding adjustment to, um, to 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 demonstrate that if a carbon project has been um, uh, developed in one country but the actual carbon emissions are going to be used in some way for for reporting for, for an offsetting claim in another country by another organization um, that there is a a, um, a debit and a credit made in that uh, accounting um, ledger between the uh, um, uh, between the, the country that's actually where the host, hosting the projects and the country that where it's actually being used now some people say that this isn't necessary for voluntary carbon markets because when we're talking about corporates they don't need to um, uh, account in that way it's a different set of accounting principles but w what we feel is that, that the, um, the, the, the 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 corresponding adjustment can give some uh, level of assurance to to users that these credits are definitely being um, accounted only once. Now, the other areas that we're looking at are things like the registry. So, so we're working with organisations who are looking to develop a, a meta registry. As you know, there's a series of different registries around the world um, run by the different standard setters, uh, uh, Gold Standard, Vera, ACR, CAR, to name but a few. What we want to see is some way that these are all linked together and actually are able to talk to each other. And that way we can help to ensure that a carbon credit is unique um, and that we know exactly what happens to that carbon credit from, from its initiation um, and its issuance onto a registry all the way to the point at which it is, uh, it is actually retired um, by um, a, a user of some, some, in some form or other, be it a corporate or a government. So you can see, you can trace exactly what's happened to that individual unique carbon credit all the way from, from beginning to end. And that's one of, one of the ways that we will help to tackle um, issues like double counting. But uh, again, this is all about having the, much of this infrastructure in place um, to be able to, to deal with these issues that we, we know have, 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 have happened in the past. We are learning from those 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 mistakes. The, the the voluntary carbon markets have developed over the last ten years and really have evolved, and and so what we're coming to is is a a market that has actually developed uh, consistently over that time, and it's actually been able to deal with many of the issues that have come up as they've um, come up. So we're not starting from scratch here. We're starting from something that is actually in a reasonably um, reasonably good state but we're really taking it and we're trying to bring that all together in a meaningful way so that we can scale the voluntary carbon markets and actually have a 
uh, make sure that they do have an impact and support um, the Paris Agreement to, to uh, enable us to reduce our carbon emissions and to get to net zero by 2050. Great. Well, thank you so much for all that information. So we've covered some of those big issues like double counting and data accessibility and traceability, trackability. Um, whenever I cover carbon markets as well, something else I get asked in the comments a lot, and I, I'm hoping you can provide some insight on, um, is how we can make sure that the right sectors benefit to the right extent. So, for example, the offices that could decarbonise fairly close to zero fairly soon don't just purchase up all the credits um, before, for example, aviation, agriculture, heavy industry, these sectors that will likely need more credits for a longer amount of time. So one of the key tenets of the uh, of, of the task force is that companies must reduce their uh, emissions uh, in line with the science. So we really want to encourage that. This is not about companies using the voluntary carbon markets to um, as a first port of call. The first thing they should do is reduce their carbon emissions and they should report those reductions on an annual basis and demonstrate that they're on a path to to net zero. But we do want to encourage companies to um, buy carbon credits above and beyond, over and above what they actually are doing uh, in terms of their emissions reductions. So we know that the, the journey to, to reduce emissions is, is going to take some time, but we want to make sure that those companies can actually do something now. So if they can't reduce emissions today, what can they do instead? And that's actually where, you, where, where, where um, carbon credits come in. And as you rightly said, for those hard to abate sectors, this may be the, the one thing that they can do that's actually tangible to 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 put money into carbon projects that wouldn't happen otherwise to help reduce deforestation, to improve agriculture, to help with um, energy efficiency projects around the world. And so these projects are really going to um, to have additional co-benefits above and beyond the the carbon emissions that they're going to reduce. But this is something that we want companies to do, as I say, after they've actually done it, made every effort to reduce their carbon emissions. And if they are in a sector where, where reducing carbon emissions is, is relatively easy, that's something that they should be doing first before they start to use carbon credits. Now, what I would say is that we're not going to stop any company or any organization from buying carbon credits. It's not the buying of the carbon credits that's the issue. It's the claim that they make around them and the and the the use of them. If they're using them to say that they make a particular claim around carbon neutrality or net zero, then there have to be certain safeguards. Now, we're we're not getting directly involved in that. That's actually been de dealt with by um, certain other bodies, but we certainly have an interest in that, and we want to make sure that there's a, that integrity of 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 demand. That we're dealing with the quality of supply. We want to also make sure that there's a high quality demand as well, and that those companies that are out there buying carbon credits are doing it for the right reasons. So, so right now, most of the carbon credits are going to be coming from nature-based solutions, and that's great. We want to absolutely want to encourage companies to be investing in nature-based solutions to help support the ecosystem globally and and to reduce deforestation. If it, we, we see um, we see approximately 15% of global carbon emissions coming from deforestation each year, so it's absolutely critical that we. We do things to prevent that. So that's really important. And that's that's one of the one of the big benefits of the of the carbon market that we are going to see money go into those types of projects. But, but beyond that, we also need to see money going into technologies that that need scaling up. So we need to see money going into technologies such as uh, green hydrogen, direct air capture of carbon dioxide and storage um, and sustainable aircraft fuels. So we're also looking at ways that we can encourage 
um, uh, uh, investment into those projects and development of that. So I'll give you a quick example. If you'd, exa if you'd invested five billion in solar back in 1985, um, this investment would have produced around 1.3 um, billion tons of carbon emissions reductions. However, in 2000, if you'd invested, the actual same um, investment would have uh, would have produced only 273 million tons of CO2. And the reason for that is because the the, the um, technology is that much further along the uh, maturity scale. And really what we're trying to do is get in, encourage money to come into these technologies as soon as possible to actually help that uh, scaling happen quicker. And that way we can actually help to uh, reduce the emissions more quickly and again meet those goals of the Paris Agreement. Thanks once again to Chris for his time and his insight there and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of that consultation. That's all for part one of this episode so join Matt and I in part two where after looking at how the private sector can shift carbon markets we explore the role of national and international policy with former energy and climate change minister for the UK Lord Barker. Hello and welcome back to this episode of ED's Sustainable Business Cover podcast, which is all about carbon markets, offsetting, trading and pricing. Matt, for our next guest, we have a speaker who I know you've worked with several times before, and that is Lord Lord Barker of Battle. I think you caught up for the Green Room last, potentially? Yeah, yeah. Um, late last year, actually, um, he was kind of settled into his role at the, uh, the M Plus group. And I spoke to him two summers ago when he took that kind of position on it's a uh, it's a, an interesting story um obviously former tech uh, minister Moore Barker but the, the company itself has a um has an interesting history where it's kind of gone from a, a very controversial um ownership model to what is really becoming a, a green leader in in both the uh the hydro space and the uh, the aluminium space so it's a, it's a really interesting case study Mm, yeah, so Matt and I are friends of Lord Barker, but for those of you who might not be aware, he's a man with several different hats and a long and varied career in the environmental space. Um, so he first served after becoming MP as Shadow Environment Secretary before being appointed as Minister of State at the now defunct DEC in 2010. He remained in that post for five years, at which point he announced that he was stepping down to become, as you say, Matt, the non-executive chair at aluminium and hydropower giant N Plus Group. Having worked with Russian energy firms prior to his political career, Barker applied his expertise to plan a low carbon future for that corporation. But for once, we're not here to speak about um, the M Plus Group, but to explore Lord Barker's new role as co-chair of the World Bank's Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition. To tie this back to part one of the podcast, the task force on scaling the voluntary carbon markets is advocating for a robust carbon price and has stated that this policy mechanism is essential to scaling markets in a way that genuinely enables the net zero transition. As of October 2019, the average global carbon price was just two US dollars per tonne. Some think tanks have said that 50 US dollars or more will be needed to truly drive change at scale and build in a bias towards low carbon sectors and technologies globally. While the price has at points surpassed the 50 pounds or 50 euro mark in the EU and UK respectively, it's far lower in many other geographies and completely non-existent in many others. And that's where the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition comes in. 
So here with more information about that coalition and about the other policy tools that are ultimately needed to complement pricing in markets is Lord Barker. Good afternoon, Lord Barker. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast this afternoon um, to talk about the World Bank's Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition. Um, how are you this afternoon? I'm very well, thanks, Sarah, and great to be back chatting with Edie again. Yes, a, a very warm welcome back. Um, I feel like there was a time probably last year when Matt had you on the phone every other week or so. So great to be catching up and to talk about um, and to talk not not about EM Plus today, um, but to talk about this coalition um, of of which I know you've just been appointed a co-chair um, after membership for for several years. So from having worked with the coalition since I believe 2017, it would be great to hear from your point of view how, how it's evolved. Well, I think there's a real opportunity now for the CPLC to really go up a gear. Uh, this is a critical year for the whole climate agenda. But I feel very strongly that carbon pricing needs to be more central to the agenda, right at the centre of the climate action agenda. And in a way, we've perhaps lost focus on it um, in recent in recent years. So I very much hope that the coalition, given its huge breadth of membership of you know, governments, regions, states, but also some of the world's largest companies, can come together and really drive a rigorous focus on carbon pricing. In the past, carbon pricing, I think perhaps has been seen as a little bit of a technical area, maybe something for experts uh, and, uh, and enthusiasts, rather than part of the broader dialogue, the, the more inclusive dialogue um, around climate action and climate policy. I want to change that. I think if I set myself a mission for my chairmanship, it's to bring a, a larger group of voices and stakeholders into the discussion around carbon pricing, make it a little bit less techie and put it right in the, in the mainstream for, for climate policy making. And, and you've mentioned there all the different kinds of organisations at different sizes and shapes um, that the coalition works with. So when you say top of the agenda, I'm presuming you mean at all of those levels. So international, Absolutely. national. Absolutely. And mo most of all, you know, we've got a, an opportunity um, this year with COP26 to supercharge the climate, climate agenda in both the public and private sector in the global north, the global south, large economies and small. And it's vital that we touch all of those points. And carbon pricing is one of the few policies that is really quite universal and that it touches all of those key actors. Mm, and, and ahead of COP26, I feel like we are now past the target setting and now to the how do we deliver. So I wanted to take a look at case studies really, as in I'm not an international expert on carbon pricing. Um, so in your work at looking at this, have you seen any particular nations that you think are, are leading in, on this agenda? Well, I think we what we can say is that carbon pricing, um, on the, putting a price on carbon has really picked up in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, particularly in Europe and the UK. A decade ago, I was the climate change minister in the UK and was responsible for the EU ETS within the, within the UK. And the UK was actually leading the uh, ETS on policy. At that time, uh, there was a massive slump in, uh, in the ETS price. 
and it really wasn't clear how carbon pricing could materially make a difference to our climate policies. But that's all changed now with the price of carbon in the ETS and in the UK um, breaking through um, 50 euros in May. Um, we now see that this is a meaningful policy tool uh, and is set to go higher towards the sorts of levels that independent analysts predict could actually start to deliver real change in the habits, behaviour and purchasing of large industrial emitters. No, I remember seeing that headline, the headline about the, the £50 pound or the €50 um, euro mark be, being passed. So good to see that you, you believe that that might, might continue and, and broaden. I mean, let's be clear, that's only a start. Um, mm. It needs to be much higher in that to drive real change. But it's a good start. I am a, an optimist, a half glass full sort of person. So I would see this as an encouragement to really step up rather than get depressed that we've still got a long way to go. I see. And then obviously we've got other things happening as well. So China ETS launching this year, UK ETS, which is part of why we're doing this podcast. It just seems to be a real moment globally. Absolutely. And the UK ETS, very encouraging. I was a big Remainer, so I was very disappointed when the uh, UK opted to leave the ETS, which wasn't a complete given that we would leave the ETS when we left the European Union, and was slightly sceptical at how that would pan out. But I'm happy to be um, confounded and prove wrong because the UK ETS does seem to be very robust, uh, is working efficiently, and I think it's got a good platform on which to grow further. Mm, and I wanted to touch on that. So we've touched there about sort of the growth in the future, but something else that you've mentioned as well is the need for this to, to sit alongside other policies and well as well and form part of a, a bigger agenda. So I was actually looking at your um, welcome speech um, as co-chair of the, the coalition and you mentioned that this is essentially one part of what you described as a whole climate policy um, toolbox. So I'm sure there are lots of tools in there um, but what other ones would you point out specifically to complement that carbon price? Well I think green investment is the key. Um, you have to recognise that when it comes to climate change there is inherent market failure. If we're going to go now at the dramatic pace and scale that we need to in terms of decarbonisation to keep the world on track to meet science-based targets rather than just on a best efforts basis so as soon as the market will get their basis you have to recognize that there is a clear role for, for governments around the world to intervene in markets alongside and with and in conjunction with the private sector um, so that so what does that mean i think that means that there is an exciting opportunity for investment particularly now as we come out of covid particularly that, that we have this global reset going on with huge budgets being diverted for expenditure into infrastructure and job creation programs post pandemic there is this real opportunity to harness that into green projects green investment Hark back to when I was a UK minister, one of my very proud uh, achievements was to be one of the driving forces behind the UK's Green Investment Bank, mm -hmm. which played a critical role in helping to pump prime the uh, UK clean energy sector, and in particular, the UK offshore wind industry, putting in relatively small amounts of, of uh, 
public funding, but as a result was able to catalyze much, much more in terms of private sector funding that followed on. And I think that's a, that's a great model, which can be varied, but is a great model. But it's not just green investment. Also, regulation is, is critically important. Um, if you look at the way in which the commitment to phase out by law the internal combustion engine in the 2030s has really jump-started the electric vehicle industry um, and as well as being chairman of uh, uh, the N-plus group, I'm also the non-exec chair of uh, EVN, the Electric Vehicle Network, which is developing a, a, a whole series of fast charging hubs uh, and charging points across the across the UK. And I see the real exponential growth there in the UK um, EV sector. And that wouldn't have happened if there wasn't very clear government guidance and regulation that's driving that, that forward. So I think that's a very good example of progressive, long-sighted um, government policy that's helping to drive the private sector in a particular direction and in a more ambitious way than would, would other be, otherwise be the case. But all of these individual initiatives need to come together under a solid, reliable, um, rising price on carbon. And that, that is the, 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 the central point. Without it, it's very difficult to think that the, um, the accumulation of these different policy initiatives will add up to the scale of um, delivery that we need to see. I mean, I remember, you know, Back in the day when I first went into politics, first became in the early 2000s, first became interested in the climate agenda. The universal answer to most difficult questions and the way to kick them into the long grass was to say, well, they'll put a price on carbon. You know, when Tony Blair was at the dispatch box, he was a great evangelist for climate action. But if there was ever a difficult question, for example, you know, aviation, how are you going to deal with emissions that come from aviation? Put a price on carbon. Uh, you know, emissions trading would would be the answer. Well, I think we came to realise over the last decade that it does require more than that sort of one club golfing. But at the same time, now we also realise that we have to look again with greater rigour and ambition at carbon pricing because without that central support for a really robust carbon price, all of these other initiatives will simply not cut it. I was talking to a policy advisor in the US um, last week and she essentially was of the same opinion and phrased it as such that everything in the toolbox has to be working um, to create a, a market bias towards low carbon technologies to the scale as such that it's just going to be exponential and there won't be any any backtracking. That's a that's a much clearer and better way of putting it. <laughs> spent three minutes trying to express. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Not at all. And I, I wanted to come on to, to the private sector role here, which you obviously me mentioned in terms of green finance. There will be certain amount coming from governments and moving internationally and nationally from governments. Um, but ultimately, there needs to be this leverage with the private sector as well. And the coalition's advisory group has many representatives from other large businesses and a lot of historically high emitting sectors represented there. Um, so beyond this coalition of the willing, as, as it could be called, do you, uh, do you think that there is good good support across the private sector for strong carbon pricing? Yes, I think it is. Um, if you look at the CPLC membership, 59% of our members have already introduced an internal carbon price. 
And a survey run by the CDP last year found over 2,000 companies either use or anticipating using carbon pricing in the next two years because they recognise it drives efficiency and really does guide investment in the right right, right way. Um, I'll give you an example. I mean, the construction company Saint-Gobain, for example, uses two different carbon prices to guide decisions with different time horizons. Uh, 50 euros um, per tonne of carbon for capital expenditure and 150 euros for R&D, you know, for that, for mm -hmm. that future-looking um, uh, capex. And I think that's a very smart way of doing things. And certainly, I think this also comes down to corporate confidence. Um, you know, in my own group, in the in, in the N plus group, we are in, have a timeline for investing that spans decades. Really, we've got a number of very exciting projects, some of which will begin begin commercial production uh, in towards the end of the 2020s. We then have others which um, you know are really going to uh, scale up uh, in 2030 and beyond, and then even beyond that. And I think having that confidence to safely predict a carbon price, which will be critical to ensuring that those assets uh, are able to offer a commercial return, is, you know, it's not easy for a, a company, for a board of directors to take that decision to, to predicate a price forward when the price is currently something different. But I think this is this is coming with growing confidence and growing certainty. And certainly there is confidence in numbers. So the more people join in this coalition, it will become a virtuous reinforcing circle, I think, and march us in the right direction. So it sounds like it's a case of that long termism and that collaboration then. Absolutely. That's what we know. We need a nice outbreak of long termism. Thanks once again to Lord Barker for his time and his insight there, and I'm sure we're going to get some more updates from his coalition ahead of COP. Well, that's both of the guest speakers for this episode, which we hope has given you a brief flavour of recent movements and near-term plans in the world's world of carbon markets offsetting trading and pricing. Before we sign off for this episode, I want to bring your attention to a bumper week of virtual events that we have in July as part of our Countdown to COP26 festival that Matt and I were talking about in the introduction to this episode, um, which is supported by our headline partner, O2. So on July 13th and 14th, our Sustainable Investment Conference is returning in a digital format for the second year running. Over the course of those two days, we'll be bringing together hundreds of professionals across the green finance space, including asset managers and owners, executives at corporations, sustainability managers, regulators, policymakers, NGOs, key industry bodies, and pretty much everyone else working at parts of the sustainable finance value chain. You can expect high level keynote talks, panel debates, virtual booths, interactive workshops and much more um, with speakers representing the likes of BlackRock, Aviva Investors, UBS Asset Management, CDP and WWF. Straight after that, on July 15th, it's time for ED's brand new Energy and Transport Forum, which is also virtual. Linking to those two key COP26 themes of clean energy and clean transport, this brand new virtual conference is exploring what it takes to deliver the net zero transition in these key sectors, often described as the enablers of the broader transition, especially for energy. The Department for Transport's Parliamentary Under Secretary of State, Rachel McLean, has been confirmed as one of our keynote speakers, alongside the Energy Institute's Chief Executive, Nick Waith, 
the Climate Group's Chief Executive Helen Clarkson and Innovate UK's Senior Innovation Lead Harsh Pushard. Um, Matt, I think there's also another primer report coming out around that, the clean transport one. Yeah, so the, the pipeline um, is climate finance will be could well be live by the time uh, our audience is listening to this podcast. Um, and then following that, yeah, we'll have the clean transport primer uh, going. Um, we are still in discussions for a, a forward from that, but from a, from a leader in this space, can't give you more information like that. But yeah, again, it um, ties nicely in with the themes of, of uh, clean transport. And one thing I found, and it's not exactly a shock, is that transport is very much dependent on energy as a way to decarbonise um, as we switch to EVs and not just EVs, um, public transport, freight, uh, shipping and aviation, electrification plays a key role in all of those. Um, and there is no zero emission vehicles if the energy being powering them is not clean as well. So the interdependencies of those two are, are so crucial. So the um, the primer and the, uh, the forum will hopefully shed light on that with some practical advice for businesses too. It's a very natural pairing, isn't it? So really looking forward to that. You can find full agendas for those events and register for them at ed.net forward slash COP26 forward slash festival. That's ed.net forward slash COP26 forward slash festival. Matt and I hope to see as many of you as possible there virtually, of course. Um, But for now, it's a goodbye from us both. So goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.